welcome back to Technicolor Kaleidoscope Oratory. My name is Erin English. Today we're going to start reading a book of short stories by a local author here to South Coast, Massachusetts. His name is Kevin J. DuPont. The book of short stories is called The Dark Persists. We're going to start by reading a title called Beside the Dying Fire. last month that I counted 364 stars. Now, as the purple chill of the evening air arrived, I began my count again. It doesn't take nearly as long. 12, 13, 14. I twisted my lips as I marked down the number in my notes. It seemed to be really accelerating towards the end. Over a dozen stars had vanished from airspace since last night. black void of the night sky was once littered with tiny speckles of white and yellow, but now it was merely blips, like dust on LCD screen. It was summer, although seasons didn't really change anymore. Every day was boundless winter. Snow fell constantly, but it was unlike the snow the earth had known. It was harsh, sheets of prickly ice that cut uncovered parts of skin with frost if left exposed. It was an uncomfortable place to exist, to say the least. Several loud crunches of snow signaled his return from surveying the snowscape around us. Large fire to the north, likely marauders, Cleetwood barked. Frost shaking off his coat as he settled beside the fire and myself. Cleetwood's hair was an unmistakable saffron color. The roots of his knotted red hair streaked to an ombre orange by his waist. I don't much like marauders, he spat, ungentlemanly like. she said, not looking up from her own spot beneath the ledges of the tent. Snow was still managing to hit Ainsley in the face. They are just survivors like the three of us. Ainsley talked and acted like she could have had Coke bottle glasses and her hair combed flat against her head. But reality was often less cliche. Instead, she was unusually tall, broad-shouldered, and had aptly earned the name linebacker scientist from Cleetwood. Cleetwood was four inches her junior, but his bravado compensated as if he were four feet shorter. Oh, Ainsley said, abbreviating my name. If my calculations are correct, this could be the last night that any of these stars are visible from the planet. Ainsley bumped Cleetwood's ribs as she walked past him. Then your calculations mean we cannot be afforded more time, I said. We must initiate the protocol now. 
Ainsley's left eye twitched. It always did that when her super-powered brain tried to process reality from the theoretical. She spent her days scribbling on paper. Cleetwood laughed deeply, shaking his head as if the past few months we had all been together were a dream he was about to awake from. You said even if the stars went out, I could have up to a week for final preparations, Ainsley pleaded. I was untruthful, I retorted, matching her eye twitch with a cheekly wink. Ainsley on the back thunderously as he chuckled. All calculations in the world aren't going to save her from maybe burning bits into the sky. They literally could, Ainsley said, turning her full attention to the fearless brute until their voices trailed off from my mind and I could only hear my inner thoughts. I was prepared. I was ready. I was being reborn. Cleet would have been right to be cautious of the fire in the north. It was large enough to tw for 20 to 30 people to stay alive during the night, and at these times, there were likely close to 50 survivors gathered by it, each trying to keep their breath from turning to ice. I walked out from beneath the tent, leaving Cleetwood and Ainsley bickering from behind and immediately felt the fierce bite of the eternal wind that plagued this world. The sky almost seemed frostbitten, black, dying, and cold. The rhinoceros, however, emanated against the black. It was 18 feet, 6 inches in height, large enough to get the job done, but small enough that no one else could see it from afar. Near its gold peak, a vicious-looking dagger that served as the ship's beacon jutted out with an ominous purple light at its point. It looked like a horn, so Cleetwood had named it Rhinoceros. Oh, Cleetwood's voice whistled in subtly as the wind. I hadn't even noticed the bickering had stopped in the background. Yes, I said. There was a long silence between us. Cleetwood spoke of marauders and bandits and crime like we lived in the Old West because to him, that's what it, the world had become. I had already been with Ainsley many months before we met Cleetwood. He was among the criminals that had roamed about this fallen earth. He could have helped his brother and destroy us, but he did not. He helped us, and I never asked why. Ainsley did, but Cleetwood never answered. Ainsley keeps saying the rhino isn't ready, he said. It needs to be as ready as it needs to be. smirked before looking down at the snow-covered dirt. Emotion was so fleeting on the face of the brute men. The base of the rhino was warm enough that even the fiercest ice did not tussle with it. I reached out with practiced hands like I had been trained to and adjusted the warm knob so that the purple light on the horn flicked gold, then green, then an ultramaroon before whirring began. The stars have been going out for months, I said, unsure of why I had been speaking at all. It is time that I bring them back. Ainsley appeared from outside the tent, halfway towards the rhino.
She looked worried and excited simultaneously, like a kitten discovering a bug on a window. The rhino will serve its purpose, I said, so that Ainsley could hear me, but not diverting my attention from the ship's operating protocol. I didn't need Ainsley or Cleetwood to do this, but I needed them there for it. Oh, if this burns up before you, Ainsley said, voice trailing off. A lot of work had gone into prepping the rhino and into determining what to do to defeat the anomaly that had cascaded over the earth. It squirmed in the sky with its inky black tentacles, with only glimmers of what it consumed. The frozen star had replaced our sun, the black hole of our own creation. The rhino blinked three times red to signify the completion of turn-on protocol. I moved swiftly to bypass the safety in order to begin the launch protocol. With such precision, I heard Ainsley gasp. Fleetwood placed a hand on my shoulder, and I was unsure of if it was for comfort or encouragement. The hum of the rhino was the only sound I could hear. We stood, the three of us together, for a brief period before I realized why Cleetwood had tried to get my attention. The great fire in the north had sparked numerous flames. Torches could have been seen moving down the forest line towards us. We had been spotted. The mechanical whirring of the rhino must have carried by the wind. Normally we were quiet and careful, but the testing procedures were never as loud as actually starting to launch the thing. Before Ainsley or Cleetwood could protest, I jammed my finger into the safety to disable it, began flipping switches, turning knobs, and making modifications. Ainsley knew there was no stopping the initiation, and thus made her way to the keyboard to run programming. Cleetwood nodded momentarily, closed his eyes in prayer, and then walked melancholily to a wooden crate 40 yards from the rhino where he withdrew a weaponry to defend us if needed. Once I start this O, you will need 12 minutes before you can board. Clear? Ainsley asked, not expensing an answer. I heard the thud, shuffle, and groan from Cleetwood behind us as he carried whatever he needed to fend off any invaders. Even if he bought us 30 seconds, I would be grateful. I took one last long look at the night sky. So much emptiness out there. So much nothing. It wasn't my destiny to bring it all back. It was my purpose. Ainsley worked diligently on the ship's computer while I prepped myself for the cockpit. When ready, I would step in, be elevated to the midship by the platform, and from there, we would be able to maintain the ship on its relatively short journey. Hey, Cleetwood's voice boomed. I didn't have to look back to know that the others had progressed significantly towards us. The look on Ainsley's face showed that she did not think that we would have enough time before the others arrived. Wind whipped rime and snow across the air like shredded paper. Yet the hum of the ship was so heavy and guttural, it overpowered nature. The platform for the rhino beeped twice before opening for me to step onto. I quickly obliged, looking back to see 12 to 15 torches of light now free from the forest and marching across the snowy landscape. 
single, fairly tall, masculine shadow figure stood between myself and them. The confined space of the rhino's platform was quite comforting. Even as I looked out onto the chaotic wild of the snow and the fire, it was the warmest I'd felt in a long time. Oh, we are good in two, Inslee's voice crackled in through the ship's short-range radio. Copy, I said. I'd always wanted to say that. The door to the platform would not close until the final moment. I could see out the frozen world as the fires from the other's torches overtook Cleewood's body. Was he in combat? Was he trampled by the mob? Was he dying? I couldn't know, and maybe never would. One. Uncomforting shakes trembled from the bones of the spaceship as it began to dust off the cobweb that it collected and prepared for action. The rhino was mostly recommissioned parts that Ainsley and I had gotten together over the course of the years traveling together. All to stop the stars from going out. The fire danced closer. If the mob had so quickly swallowed Cleetwood, Ainsley would only have about twice as long as they got back to her. Brace! And so, I did. The platform door snapped shut with the mechanical crutch like a turnstile on a subway platform. I felt my back hit the wall as I stumbled, and once I saw the platform start moving, it was hard to tell if the platform was going up or the ship was collapsing down. It felt like an earthquake was happening all around me as the platform grinded, really struggling to ascend. Chimney Christmas, Ainsley's chaotic voice said. Hold on. The sound of metal scraping was ominous and haunting. It felt like the ship was going to be torn apart. How the hell is it going to get off the ground? A transcendent boom like the volcanic thunder jolted me under. I was fully sideways on the platform. It was followed by a soft, mousy clink as the platform stabilizer hit the cockpit. Oh, Ainsley called. Copy, I said, shaken but not stirred. The static crackled through short bursts of interference, then there was nothing. Was Ainsley gone now, too? I lifted myself up and pressed my face against the window. It was the only non-essential feature that Ainsley would allow, and it gave me a brief access into the world outside the rhino. The torches from the rotters' survivors were no longer flames licking the trees in the distance. They were tickling the bottom of the rhino like the witch's cauldron. Would they try to come for me next? Would they rattle the rhino off its docking station and ruin my entire purpose? Shimmy, shimmy, and a quarter turn from the engine's mechanism, and the rhino began to smart fire in retaliation. The whole iron cage started to sing as gallons of rocket fuel ignited and burst. Suddenly, the fires from the pillagers were doused as they scattered backwards, being led away by my inside fluttered. An overly tall, sciency linebacker of a woman. My eyes scanned the ground as two dozen human beings scrambled away from the launching rocket. The ombre red hair of Cleetwood caught my eye easily. He was looking up at me with an insane laughing smile. The rhino popped off the docking mechanism and was now freestanding. The inertia of the launch was now thrusting the rocket upwards. It felt like being in an elevator inside of a volcano. The ship wobbled, floating up like a drizzled bumblebee. 
for several seconds before I felt the roar of its true power. Suddenly, I was flying. The snow, the fires, the people became smaller, but they were all safely away from the docking station now, looking up at me. Ainsley was right. They were not marauders. They were just humans. They were just survivors. Oh, Ainsley's voice crackled through one last time. Just, I... The static was continuous as Ainsley held her call open for several seconds without saying a word. I feel the same way. The radio shrieked and died, as was the atmospheric interference became too much and my contact with the ground and my friends was terminated. I would now be reliant on the very basics of tools similar to the ones during Earth's original Apollo missions. The space race had been a spectacle of mankind. A race of evolved primates saw a ball of light in the sky and decided to shoot themselves at it. It took endless attempts for humanity to perfect the similar short galactic flight that I had been undertaking. But I am not human. O.S. Operating System. I plugged the port of my right index finger into the ship's AI tap field and could extrapolate the data from there. I was way off trajectory, but I was within means of correction. The data of the rhino was felt warming to me, like blood would to a fleshling. Simple fixes and the rhino was on course for the frozen star as Ainsley and I had mapped. The rhino was forced to operate on such a basic tech because the payload it was carrying needed to carry many resources to safeguard. There was only one way to bring the stars back to Earth that was to destroy the black hole we had formed. The heat of Earth's atmosphere turned visual world around me to hot orange, but my mind was cool and collected in the digital world. All indicators on the motherboard were normal, well, nominal enough. Hawk-like screeching signified that the atmosphere ripping off one of the protective shields on the outside of the rhino. Whatever, I didn't need them much longer. Gravity ping-ponged around, shifting my balance and spinning the rhino in a corkscrew as it excited the atmosphere. The g-force felt thickening to my body as I understood it. Then nothing. Absolute freedom. The earth below becoming a singularity and the people on it so fantastically small in comparison. The rhino rush, payload and all towards the frozen star known to humanity as a black hole. Forty minutes and the rhino would collide with the heart of the gravitational giant. As the rattling cage calmed for spaceflight, I internally began the countdown. It would be my last 45 minutes alive. I remembered when Ainsley first activated me in her lab. I remember when she transferred me into this bipedal body. I remember when she realized that I experienced true artificial intelligence. My first emotion was joy. 30 minutes and the payload of hard scavenged nuclear reactors would collapse in the black hole and myself inside of it. I remembered how Cleetwood had mentioned that he had a son once. Most people got really quiet when they talked about their children and they had lost them.
mentioned his son with only admiration and pride. A memory that he did not let fade, but instead cherished. 20 minutes, I had already felt the rhino's short shelf life, feeling its wear and tear. It had not been smooth, nor had it been clean, but the rhino would maintain its stabilization for another two hours. I did not eat it for that long. Ten minutes, and I saw a fifteenth star. One more than I had counted on the beginning of this evening. They were still out there, after all. The black hole had grown so vast across Earth's horizon it had obscured them. Hidden gems that the survivors would below feast upon with all hope and determination as human could. See a light in the sky, fire some people at it. One second, and all time stopped. There was a brief, brief moment not long enough for a human mind to process, but I could. It was beautiful. There were so many stars. They shone bright against the black sea of space. Billions and trillions of stars across the universe, and too many to count. For one second, I could see them all. So many more than you could from Earth. Every star that ever was for me to gaze upon as the world around me splintered. Ainsley. Thank you. Thank you to everybody who's listening. This is a short story, the first of many that I'll be reading by Kevin J. DuPont. This has been the first story in the book called The Dark Persists. This is essentially going to serve as a teaser, not quite season five, um, which will begin in January, but this is just a taste of what's to come and to try and take the podcast in a little bit of a new and interesting direction. I'm always happy to cover local authors who are from the South Coast, Massachusetts area like me, Um, and I will be returning to more of our previously scheduled programming will be returning in season five. Thank you again for your patience. We have one very exciting feature episode that will be played on Thanksgiving this year. Um, please stay tuned and keep your eyes open for that. If you haven't had a chance to, please like, subscribe. If you have any opportunity to, please share this to your Twitter, to your Facebook. Every listen really does matter, and I can't tell you how grateful I am.